Welcome. You've joined the Sexy Lifestyle with Carol and David. Our show is here to help you achieve better, better love, better sex, and a better, more intimate relationship. Are you ready? Take notes and send us your questions. This is the Sexy Lifestyle. Now, here are your hosts, Carol and David. Hey, everyone. Are you ready to spice up your sex life and live happy, healthy, and always horny? Well, you've come to the right place because that's what the Sexy Lifestyle is all about. You know, Dave and I are passionate about making your sex life the best it can be. We sure are. And you know, we love talking and learning about everything related to sex and sexuality, sexual health, and of course, sexual pleasure. We love diving deep into the naughty, the taboo, and the unknown. And we hope our discussions open up your dialogue about great sex because, well, great sex matters and we all deserve it. We sure do. So, have you ever wondered what it is like to be a sex researcher studying sex all day long for work? Hey, man, where can I sign up, right? That's the job of a lifetime. Well, on today's show, we're going to learn what it takes to study sex and collect a a body of data that's going to help us gain a better understanding of things like orgasms, pornography use, penis size preferences, and all sorts of other sexy taboo topics. So um, just to let everyone know, I'm at the tail end of getting over this 14-day flu. So you might have to deal with Carol doing a lot more talking than me today. Um, she promised to be as funny as I am. So uh, apologize, apologies up front. I think you're going to be just fine, I'm going to do my best. Okay. Anyways, we're just going to take a moment to remind everybody about our top waterproof blanket because great sex is messy sex, but nobody wants to sleep in that wet spot. So if you're fed up with having to change your sheets every time you have sex, then you need one of our top waterproof blankets. It's 100% waterproof and leak-proof, and it guarantees to keep your bed and mattress dry no matter how wet it gets. From messy massage oils or silicone loops to all sorts of sexy wetness, just throw it in the washer and dryer and it comes out looking just like brand new. And you don't have to leave your house to get one. Simply and safely, go to Amazon and order yours today. Search Top Waterproof Blanket, that's T-O-P, Waterproof Blanket. Great sex starts now. It sure does, babe. This is The Sexy Lifestyle, and we are Carol and David, and we are so excited to introduce today's special guest. Uh, We have Dr. Nicole Prouse, who is a sexual psychophysiologist and neuroscientist who founded the independent research institute Liberos. In Lehman's terms, Dr. Nikki is a sex researcher. That is a whole long, big mouthful. We're glad it was you to say that. (laughs) I know. So welcome, Dr. Nikki, to The Sexy Lifestyle. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy day to talk with us today. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad to chat about my favorite topic. <laughs> of course. So yes. we, we first found out about Dr. Nikki on the Netflix documentary called The Principles of Pleasure. I know. It was so fun to see you there. And then David looked you up and asked you if you would contribute to our content. And I think this is going to be an amazing show because you have lots of great information. <laughs> so on the show, I noticed that when you were working on this female Viagra type drug, uh, that you were working with all sorts of male researchers. And you were kind of made a comment that like, where are all the female researchers for this project about a female product? We did for some reason when uh, Viagra came out around 1998 for guys, a ton of money poured into research for women, which of course we were excited about. But then walked into the room of the pharma company we were working with and saw I was the only female researcher in the room and continued to be. And that did not seem unique in the trials. So, of course, men can know about women's sexuality. It's not that they can't be experts, but um, I, I found it puzzling <laughs> that there wasn't more female input. Yeah. 
That is kind of strange. But why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about how and why you became a sex researcher? I wish I had a more creative origin story, but mine's one of uh, being a nerd. (laughs) So I had to take a class in laboratory science when I was at Indiana University in Bloomington and looking through the catalog, I was like, Kinsey Institute, what's, oh my God, (laughs) and saw the Kinsey Institute uh, for Research in Sex, Gender, and Reproduction, which is unique in uh, America for being able to learn sexual psychophysiology. So I just went to take a class there and learned that you don't have to just ask people how aroused they are. You can measure it and you can compare it then to how aroused they say they are. And you can measure it in a bunch of different ways. And there aren't that many people measuring these things. So you can make your own and you can test those. And it was just a really, really big opening to answer a lot of big questions that we don't necessarily have access to just doing surveys. I mean, surveys have their place, but... There's just so much to be done in this space, lots of unexplored areas, places where you could really be the first to ask the question and kind of blow up in the science in a new space. So it's just a really exciting area of research. Now, I know that you uh, discovered that you could learn about sex and do all your own research at that particular point. But earlier in your life, were you curious about sex? Were you always diving into books and trying to learn more and more about it? I don't think so, especially actually. I was raised in Southeast Texas uh, in a pretty conservative family. We don't talk about those things at the dinner table. I still can't talk about my job at the (laughs) dinner table. Uh, yeah, I think like a lot of families in that area, it was just a non, non-entity, non not something you talked about. And that really didn't change and hasn't changed. <laughs> so uh, my trajectory might be a little different than some other sex researchers who it seems like may have had more open families or grown up in uh, more open communities where, you know, we were uh, generally anti-abortion and uh, had all of those kind of values at the time. And a lot of those have changed <laughs> for me, but... It's, it was a slow process of really kind of doing college and having college be exactly what it's supposed to be. That's learning to think logically through things, challenge your own assumptions and biases. And that led to the change more than anything. I think I don't know that I had a special interest uh, growing up, and that was certainly discouraged if it popped up. Oh, <laughs> so, cool. so just to go sideways for a second, because, you know, we, we always have our guests ask us uh, to ask our, our, our guests our listeners to ask us to ask our guests, um, especially the sexologists. So what is it like when you go out on a date? Like when, when someone asks you, so what do you do? And you say, well, I do sex research. Is the rest of the date all about the information you have? <laughs> it definitely can be. And that happens in many social situations, not just dating. Well, the point that it was a lot of fun initially, I tend to be shy. And so it's really helpful to have something that people can ask about, you know, it gives me an easier conversation piece. Um, but honestly, since I've gotten older now, when people ask, I'll say I'm a statistician, say I'm in neuroscience, and I'll wait and see if they ask anymore and just kind of avoid it because I feel like it's, at some point, you don't get to hear who the other person is. Right. That is, it really can overwhelm the conversation. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, more lately with dating, uh, it's more of a hindrance than a benefit. I think people are worried, you know, you're going to judge them or no. And, and they're not entirely wrong. Try and pull something like, don't even try that with me. <laughs> or, or they're worried that you're going to be measuring them and measuring their arousal levels and things like that when they're not looking. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. 
I, I know these things, but it doesn't mean I'm going to use it against you. Uh, yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, so it does create a funny dynamic sometimes, but it's, uh, was interesting maybe for non-sexual reasons in some sense, mm-hmm. you know, it was kind of use, useful for shyness and, mm-hmm. um, now it's only if they ask so that I can actually get to talk to other people. So sex is a very broad category. What would you say would be your primary interest in the area of your research? I'm really interested in variability in sexual motivation and especially how we can apply sexual responsiveness to general health issues. So I spent probably the first 10-ish years of my career trying to understand why some people say they have higher motivation or lower motivation, but now almost everything has a gear towards what can I do with this? That is, if you're sexually aroused, if you have a climax, what is that doing to aspects of our body system that may be useful for managing pain or helping facilitate sleep or managing depressed mood? So it's really about what can we do with that? You know, how is a sex healing, to go back to the old song, you know, sexual healing, it's really trying to push that science. And see how might this be useful outside of just sex itself? Well, sexual health and wellness is something that we hear go together all the time. And we know that sex is good for us. So you're kind of measuring how good or how can it be better or how we can use it. Is that what I'm understanding? Yeah, I think a lot of sex research focuses on sex per se. It's like, how can we increase the frequency of orgasms? How can we increase arousal? And that's fine. You know, those are good questions to ask. People people benefit from that sexually. But I'm trying to go the next step and say, okay, if we knew that, then what could we do with that information? So not trying to say you should think that uh, that sex is uh, healthy or that we deserve good sex, but rather it's important because it can be used for other things you do care about. Even if you don't care about orgasms, you need to you need sex research because it's going to help you get off sleeping pills potentially, or it's going to reduce your reliance on pain medications. There are things we can do with this if we were just allowed to ask the questions mm-hmm. can take us beyond just sexual facilitation, although that's also very nice. <laughs> now, when you say sex, you're talking about masturbation as well, correct? All involved in there. We study vibratory uh, stimulation. We study um, stimulation with pornography and sexual images. We study self-stimulation. We study partner stimulation, all of it. (laughs) And one of the things that I read about some of your research that you're doing is about studying the ejaculate. And those are different. Is that a different thing that you do? Or is that part of everything that you get to look at? We have a new study where we're actually collecting ejaculate itself for the first time. So I've not studied the the content before, but we're very interested in the whole arousal process. So the tiny, tiny field of sexual physiology usually stops about three minutes in. You know, we stimulate people very briefly, then we get them on their way. But I said, you know, we probably should look at the rest. (laughs) You know, like what about high arousal states? What about climax? What about after climax? And so we're really interested in that full spectrum and seeing, you know, what does the physiology look like all the way through, including for a little bit after. Now, of course, we're, we're imagining the show Masters and Johnson, what was it called? Masters of Sex, which was on Showtime or something. And we're kind of picturing mm-hmm. their laboratory where the person was there and they were watching through a glass mirror. Can you kind of describe, is that correct? Is that a good visual or is it something completely different? <laughs> Our lab looks like any other psychophysiology lab with one exception. And so most psychophysiology labs, the participant in the research 
is in the room by themselves, hooked up to a bunch of different stuff, and the cords are run through a wall with a cabling hole that we kind of stuff to shield the sound. And then you communicate uh, through some intercom between people. So we get them set up in the space, but then we exit, close the door. Normally, PsychoPhys Labs then have a camera on the person because sometimes the rooms can be dark. You know, they can nod off or like be off task, and we we want to see that. We do not do that with sex labs. So unlike masters of sex, we don't have any visual on our participants. They have complete privacy, but we do not have a problem with people falling asleep. In <laughs> yeah, that is kind of fun, right? Well, I don't know. When I come, I normally fall asleep after that. Well, a lot of people do, but that's after the study's been done, after they've gathered their information, you can not, not off as much as you want then. As long as they've gathered the stuff they need to make their uh, their studies, that's great. And when you do these studies on ejaculation, is it the person doing it themselves, or do you also do like partnered um, uh, stimulation? Sex stim stimulation, exactly. We've done it three different ways so far in the laboratory. We've had people uh, simulated automatically with a buyer that we put on them and control with the computer next door. So it, uh, that pattern, we didn't know what that pattern should look like because it had never been done before. So we kind of just had the stimulation on for you know five seconds and then off for 10 seconds, on for five seconds, off for 10, and then we just increased the length of the stimulation. They set the intensity initially, and so the intensity kind of stays the same. It's just the period that gets extended. We had another method where we had them do the simulation with instruction. So we, the computer would tell them, okay, start simulating yourself, now stop, now start, now stop. And then uh, in the last case, we had partners in the lab where they were actually doing manual simulation of the other person. Wow, that's interesting. Now, where do you get these volunteers from? Are so these students as well? They call it us. Depends on the, <laughs> yeah. What did you say, it David? They call, the us. <laughs> they call us. <laughs> Sorry. So, go so ahead. The last one was actually uh, focused on orgasm meditation. So we wanted people who had this protocol already in their minds and knew how to do it. So that one was a really specific population. Uh, we have recruited off Craigslist, <laughs> so it's not uh, out of the pale. We will pay you to come in and masturbate for us. Uh, the, the biggest challenge with that is just reassuring people, especially women, that we're not secretly a pornography company or producers. Right. They're often concerned, reasonably so, uh, about that issue. So we, we do it all kinds of different ways, depending on what kind of population we're trying to recruit from. So with every study, how many people approximately would be involved in your data collection? We do something before every study that's called a power analysis to tell us how many people we need for that particular test. But in general, you'll see sexual psychophysiology studies are much smaller than like a survey because we have the trade-off where uh, we don't, we can't get people as easily because they have to actually come in and it's very expensive to hook all this stuff up and have a trained tech and all of that present and the space rented, et cetera. But our effects are huge because we can control everything else that's going on with this person and really isolate the thing we're interested in where surveys are these kind of gross assessments of, you know, how often you watched porn in the last year. That's hard yeah. <laughs> to measure and get good reports on. But if you're in the lab, we can show it to you and we know exactly how long you watched it. Okay. So uh, we benefit by having these bigger effects that we have to have fewer people in to be able to see our results. So our studies, like on the big side, we might have 250 people in for our aggressive meditation study. We do have some studies that are on the smaller side, more around like 25, 30 people. So let me get this straight. Um, if I were to come in there, I would get paid to watch porn and have an, uh, an 
ejaculation. I'd get to come, watch porn, and get paid. I get to play with your cock a little bit, too. I like this job. <laughs> yes. In general, we pay somewhere around $120 if we get you three or four hours. If it's a shorter experiment, you might get more like $50. Wow. That's cool. And and you actually get people volunteering. Like You have to like sometimes worry that you're not getting enough um, subjects. Subjects. Yeah, I don't know. We never have trouble getting subjects. <laughs> I, yeah. I would think so. I just standing in line. So let's get into a little bit about some of these studies that you do with porn and you put porn on. We're going to now visualize the kind of study that you're doing. But what would be the result? Like, give us an example of some type of study you would do to figure out if women could benefit from watching porn. Can you describe that kind of study? Sure. We're been using porn response and to see if that's comparable, better, different from uh, other sexual responses. And so we might look and see if you become sexually aroused, what other kinds of emotions you're experiencing, and then see if your physiology reflects that. So if you tell me I'm sexually aroused and happy and amused, then are you showing evidence of that physiologically speaking? So it's great that you feel that way, but we say trust but verify with physiology. And that can show us that the changes with sexual response are not limited to sex per se. You have other positive uh, positive affect, we would say positive emotions that go along with being sexually aroused. And so what, what things do you measure? Though? How can you tell if physiologically if they're actually aroused? We, whenever we can, we use genital measures because they're highly specific. So there are lots of ways you can measure general body arousal physiologically. You can look at electroencephalography, which is a brainwave measure. You can look at galvanic skin response or GSR, which is typically measured from the palms of the hands. But the genital measures are specific. That is, they generally only go up when you're sexually aroused, not just activated by some emotion like fear. So for women, the most common measurement is called a vaginal photoplethysmograph, although there are lots of others as well. And the most common measure is called a strain gauge, um, which is actually a bit of a change. The ridge scan used to be more common about 20 years ago, but has really kind of lost its way since Viagra came out and no one uses the ridge scan in urology anymore. But there are lots of measures for both men and women to quantify genital response, depending on exactly what it is you're trying to capture in the lab. Now, have any of the results pointed to the fact that women with low libido would benefit from watching porn? They could. The most common pattern that we see in sexual psychophysiology with women is that women tend to report they do not feel sexually aroused, but their genitals are responding to pornography. And what that suggests to us is there's something about that context that they're either not observing, noticing that their body is responding, or they feel inhibited from reporting it. And so it could be that it's the nature of what we're using, that is women feel like they shouldn't say they're aroused by the pornography that we showed them, or it could be that they're not aware of their body response. And using pornography may help provoke it so that they become more aware of what they're doing physically and then say, oh, Actually, I am. I see that now. You know, yeah. my body is responding now that you've called wow. to that. Wow, that's interesting. And I know there's like uh, some debate about the types of porn out there. And, you know, a lot of people that we talk to are talking about ethical porn, which really has a more of a female point of view as opposed to the standard regular male produced porn. Do you think ethical porn would be more uh, arousing for a woman? 
when researchers looked at what men and women report finding arousing, there's almost entirely overlap between men and women's preferences for heterosexual porn. Um, so that is within what we show them in the lab, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so I will say, you know, we don't show, tend to show extreme content. Um, so that may be things like cutting, uh, we, we don't portray in the lab, but we do show spanking and, um, those types of activities at times. And a lot of what varies whether or not people are turned on is the extent to which they identify themselves as a character in the interaction. Oh. So it seems to have less to do with the background of the film that is, oh, you know, I, I know these people and I know that they're okay. And this was ethically produced and more, you know, can I identify with this person? So perhaps there's some interaction where if you know that this person was consented and um, a willing participant, and in fact, they're real life partners also, then maybe you're more able to identify oh. with that actor or actress. So I can imagine that's a factor, but I've never seen it directly studied. Oh. You know, like, do you respond more sexually if you know that it's ethically produced? Wow, that's very, very interesting. And you were saying earlier there's a lot of overlap, but in general, does porn affect men and w women differently? Do you see different arousal points or triggers or speed of arousal? No, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you asked because there's such a myth that, oh, men are visual. I was like, they're the same. <laughs> the, the brains are wired the same. If you look at them, uh, they really look similar. In general, men on average tend to have a higher sex drive, so they tend to respond with more intensity. Uh, that is, they're more readily reactive and their activation tends to be stronger. But the patterns in the brain are the same. Uh, women are just as responsive as far as we can tell. So it really seems to be a myth that men are more visual. It's just if you were to match the genders on sex drive, I think you would see no difference. Wow, that's very And in fact, one study did that. And found <laughs> one study found that that was true? Uh, yeah, it was one study in Germany uh, some 10 years ago now. And so I, there's some evidence that that really is the case. It's men and women aren't really different in terms of porn viewing. It has more to do with sex drive. Oh. So if you're a high drive person, you respond more strongly to the stimuli. It's not the gender mm -hmm. issue so much, I think. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Now, is porn addiction a real thing? No. So uh, there are many ways to think about people who report problems viewing pornography, and we don't doubt that some people struggle with it. That's not the question. The question is, when someone comes to you and says, I'm having trouble, <laughs> I feel like I'm viewing too much, there could be a lot going on. And we need to really understand where that report is coming from to know how to help. So for example, an overwhelming majority of people who are in inpatient treatment for pornography problems have a primary diagnosis of major depressive disorder. That is, they're depressed. Oh, okay. And they're using porn and masturbation probably to try and cheer themselves up. And uh, that's really important to know that it's not an independent entity. So there are lots and lots of uh, criteria that have to be met to call something an addiction. It's a really high bar and pornography does not pass those in a number of different ways. So it's not so much that, oh, if it's not pornography addiction, then it's nothing and you shouldn't help people. It's no, of course, we're going to help people. It's just how do you best help? Yeah, that's very, very interesting. Now, one of the things I was just curious about while you were talking is that how many kinds of studies do you do on pornography? Is it like, I don't know, 10 per year or are there lots and lots of pornography studies going on? Uh, so scientists in general, there are quite a lot, but they're almost all survey based. And one of the 
things I think is interesting is you sometimes see people say, oh, you know, pornography research is new. We hardly know anything. That is definitely not the case. We've been using pornography and research for 40 years easily. It's just that sometimes the research wasn't focused on porn per se. It's like we use it to provoke a sexual response. Mm -hmm. And so part of uh, what you could rely on in that science is to say, well, what happened when you showed that pornography to women and what happened when you showed it to them in this context just because the study wasn't pursuing a question about porn per se doesn't mean it doesn't inform the pornography research so there are tons of survey research being done they're very quick and uh quick to come out but the laboratory work is much slower of course to come out so the experimentalists among us <laughs> tend to drag. I generally am only doing, you know, a study or two a year in the lab. Oh, but that's cool. Um, so one of the things that I read about you as well is that you have been doing studies on post-orgasmic illness syndrome. So let's start by telling us what this rare disease is all about and what kind of studies and what have you been finding? We got funding from two organizations to study post-orgasmic illness syndrome, and POIS is something that seems to primarily affect men, although some women also report it where they have flu-like symptoms for two to seven days after every climax experience. So it doesn't matter if they have it alone or with a partner, same kind of symptoms, uh, but they tend to persevere. They don't, uh, in general, stop being sexual. They just have to plan uh, to be sick afterwards. And sick, so like in, there are some theories. So they're sick, like their whole body uh, is affected, like really flu-like. Yeah, yeah, and they the symptoms they report vary a bit, and so that's part of what our study is doing is we're bringing these guys in and having them climax, and then following their symptoms for seven days after, and we take a ton of measures while they're in the lab as well. Um, we're really interested in the change in inflammatory cytokines before versus after they climax, because that's never been measured before. We don't even know what's normal in yeah. people who don't have this problem. Okay. So there are some theories about you know where this might come from or how we might help, but really, uh, you know, the main person working on it, Marcel Waldinger, passed away last year, and those theories were still pretty new and just a lot of case studies. And so our study is really trying to dig in to see if we can test a specific theory that we think might be related to inflammatory problems they might have. But we had just started data collection at the start of COVID. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we had to close the lab. And we are just now, uh, you know, I've uh, started at UCLA and my collaborators at University of Nebraska-Lincoln. So we're having to bring our uh, ethics reviews back through boards, which take months and just trying to get that restarted. So I wish I had more to share in terms of the results, but that's the protocol that we're running. That's what we're hoping to find. And dang it, someday we're getting these dang data. <laughs> if it kills me. <laughs> well, I think it's good to know that if you do feel this way, if our listeners out there ever thought, oh my God, I don't know what's wrong with me, that it is an actual disease. And uh, I don't know how rare it is. Do you have any numbers? No, there's never been a national sample, but one of our funders is the National Organization for Rare Disorders, if that tells you anything. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Wow. So if anybody out there has this kind of feeling, then, you know, maybe they want to contact you and see if there's anything they can do to help you, uh, maybe with your study, uh, or, I don't know, move along some of the information. And so you have a bigger sampling, I guess. 
we'll definitely be looking for people to recruit, hopefully in a couple of months. <laughs> Yay, that would be great. Well, we're just going to take a quick break right here. We'll remind everybody that this is The Sexy Lifestyle. We are Carolyn David, and we're chatting with sex researcher, Dr. Nikki. Let's just tell everyone about Topless Travel and the amazing trip we have planned for next year. All right, I'm going to try and speak a little bit. <clears throat> Uh, topless travel, as we mentioned on every show, is absolutely the best. And if you're looking for the sexiest and most erotic vacation ever. <coughs> okay, maybe, maybe not. not. Okay. Okay, I'll take over here. Let's just tell everybody about the topless travel. No, let's just tell everybody about topless travel and the amazing trip we have planned for next year. So topless travel, of course, is the best. If you're looking for the sexiest and most erotic vacation ever, then you simply must book with topless travel. From hedonism to in Jamaica and desire in Cancun and all the bliss cruise experiences, topless travel needs to be your number one choice. Their trips and events are all about the people and their sexy fun experiences. So let's just shout out to the sexy host couples, including Jessica and Justin, and of course, Party Mark, who are there to ensure that you have one hell of a sexy vacation. And of course, as always, you'll find us on many of the amazing topless travel trips. But listen up, the next Bliss Cruise in November is already sold out. So if you don't want to miss the biggest lifestyle party on the high seas, then grab your cabin on the April Bliss Cruise and join us on the Celebrity Summit from April 17 to 22, 2023. And as usual, we'll be broadcasting live from the ship. So come on and join us for the whole week and we'd love to meet you and maybe get you on our show. The cabins are selling out quickly, so you got to book now. For more information about this trip or any of the topless travel events, simply go to thesexylifestyle.com and click on the topless travel events link to book the sexiest and most erotic vacation ever. This is The Sexy Lifestyle. We are Carol and David. Now let's get back to our show with sex researcher, Dr. Nikki, as we get into some myths and disinformation. I'm so, still here. Yeah, David's still here. He's having trouble with his voice, but we're good, hon. I can do I can do some of the talking for you. You do it, babe. I will, honey. Okay, so Dr. Nikki, let's get started. What is disinformation and why is it harmful? We distinguish between misinformation and disinformation, and most sex educators are really focused on misinformation, that is, inaccurate information about sexuality just because you didn't know uh, something maybe wasn't ever told to you or we didn't have accurate information about, whereas disinformation is intentionally spreading information you know to be false. And unfortunately, that's become more of an issue, uh, I would say, in the last 10-ish years or so in sexuality, largely from people who are profiting from it. So they're trying to sell a product and tell you, oh, you know, you need this for this reason. And so I think I'm trying to shift attention a little bit from the misinformation, which is still important. Obviously, we need good sex education. We have all kinds of uh, interesting and unique issues in, in uh, America about that kind of an effort. Uh, but we also need to pay attention to disinformation. That is, there are some actors who are really, you know, trying to tell us that we, for example, have erectile dysfunction when we don't because they have something to sell us. Mm -hmm. And it's important to figure out how to find that, uh, how to highlight when it's happening, and then how to get it corrected so we don't get that spread as, as bad education. So if I'm just a layman out there and I'm on the internet, how am I going to know that some of this information that's out there and even the products that could fix my supposed problem are real or not real? That is the million dollar question. Yeah. <laughs> I think the, yeah. um, 
because there certainly are people who are for profit that are also good educators. I think just being for profit itself is not necessarily a, a marker of it. Um, but it's one thing that is, uh, you know, if I'm sitting at a university, I don't make money one way or the other for whatever it is that I'm claiming, generally speaking. So uh, hopefully, you know, if you're dealing with someone who is a researcher, then they have to disclose who's influencing them. You know, if they make money one way or another, they have to tell you uh, legally. (laughs) We're we're bound by all kinds of ethical rules and laws. So it's largely knowing a lot about the source. You know, when somebody tells me this thing, um, is their narrative hooked to something that they're selling? Mm -hmm. Like if it were otherwise, they couldn't sell me the thing they would sell me. And if they're not, Um, and if someone's not sure, thinking a lot of is there a place where they can go to, like, if they're not sure, is this a real product? Is this really going to help me? Is there somewhere we could suggest people go to verify the information or the product that they're trying to sell? So there are some efforts online to try and get out better health information. And Mayo Clinic has been at the head of some of that, um, where even if I you know don't agree with the exact details of some of their sexual information, it's generally correct. You know, um, so for example, uh, you can find on there that porn addiction isn't diagnosed anywhere. It's not a real independent issue, and uh, and they make that very clear. So it's finding those experts, and um, then we also see with the disinformation because of that sometimes some conspiracy theories. And so I've just started studying kind of conspiracy thinking within those communities where they say, oh, you know, it's a conspiracy by scientists. You know, they don't want you to know. And so they're putting out bad information. Oh, um, and that that I'm not sure how to address. Yeah. Yet. That's still yeah. still on the early end of research. It's a very strange phenomenon. And is it like um, a, a criminal offense to put out disinformation pur- purposely? Uh, I don't think so, but what what could be actionable is if someone claims to treat something mm-hmm. and they're not licensed to do so. Okay. So if you do have someone, and we get a lot of fuzzing because um, there are lots of people who act as life coaches and the regulations around that are pretty poor, poorly defined. And so some life coaches totally practice within just, you know, kind of helping someone optimize and they don't misrepresent what they do. And they're very clear that they're not mental health care providers and others claim to treat disorders and Mm. and they can't do that. That's not, that's not legal. And there are laws against that. It really is kind of a case by case basis, unfortunately, but that's one big one we see is a lot of life coaches who are like claiming to treat disorders and they, they can't do that. That is not legal. So really getting the, to, the, to the expert and finding uh, more and more information online rather than just believing one particular post online or on your social media following um, and get as much information about the product as probably going to help you the most, I guess. Yeah, as ever, it's just move slowly. Mm-hmm. You know, if you see something that looks attractive, maybe come back to it the next day and see if someone else wrote the same thing. And if they have credentials, uh, you know, just do the second step. What is that credential yeah. exactly? Yeah. <laughs> Make sure I understand who they are. Yeah. And of course, there's lots of myths out there, myths about sex, things that people don't understand. Um, but I'm going to ask you to bust a couple of these myths. The first one is that an orgasm is different in a man and a woman. Ultimately, no. Orgasms are not distinguishable between men and women. So we record the contractions that occur at climax, and they are indistinguishable. 
So if I look at the series of contractions that start in the pelvis and have a trace from a man and a trace from a woman, I can't tell the difference. And what else happens in the brain and in the body besides the contractions during orgasm? What else can you look at? So the contractions are the hallmark. They're by far the easiest thing to see. Then there's a scientific debate right now about exactly what's occurring in the brain. Uh, there's kind of a two against one right now. One lab thinks that everything becomes very active in the brain. There's a broad oxygenation across different regions. Uh, my lab and a lab in Germany think that there's a broad deactivation. That is a lessening of uh, blood flow. Uh, grossly at that time and then in some particular areas. So for the brain, we're really not sure. <laughs> They're kind of these theories right now. And we also have some new data suggesting that there's a switch that occurs prior to climax, not immediately, but like several minutes before where, you know, we try and get aroused and we focus and we have effort, you know, really trying to get ourselves worked up. And then when we're ready to climax, we actually need to reduce the inhibition and not be so effortful and focused. And that switch state is not something that's really been documented before. So we're working on getting that published and uh, collecting those data in men as well. Wow. But that's something that we, we see in men and women, um, but it does look like the male progression is, we'll say, just much quicker. Huh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I guess I can kind of imagine what you're saying, because I know uh, right before I orgasm, I have to slow my breath. Um, I used to hold my breath in the olden days. Now I just breathe very gently and slowly and, and focus, but it's not a huge effort, like you said, and just let it flow through. So I, I kind of understand. Yeah. The breath is a really interesting, we use the breath a lot in therapy for various purposes also because it's the one aspect of the sympathetic nervous system that we really have good voluntary control over. Yeah. It's like you can control your heart rate, but it's a little harder. You can control your GSR, but it's a little harder. <laughs> but the breath we got, so if you're struggling in either of those areas, either in the arousal or the switch to orgasm, it's probably worth varying your breathing rate mm -hmm. uh, to see what direction might be useful for you, whether it's breath holding, which is a really common strategy or hyperventilating, just, you know, make sure you're not going to fall on anything yeah. in case you yeah. hyperventilate too much. Um, but those are great strategies to experiment with. Well, that's very cool that, and I don't think everybody understood that an orgasm is the same in a man and a woman when you, you look at the data and you look at all of the contractions, but that's very interesting. So here's myth number two. Vibrators, porn, and robots will overload my brain signals and I'll not be able to respond properly to a real person. That is not true. Okay. <laughs> so the, the sexual response is endogenous and what that means is it's something our body generates on its own, whereas with drugs of abuse, you know, this is something that's coming from outside occupying more uh, receptors than we possibly could on our own, really doing something outside of what the body is able to do. And so there's some self-regulation, essentially. Like we can't go beyond um, masturbating what our body is going to allow us to do. Uh, I know in particular with vibrators, people have some concerns. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not totally without merit. I think like a lot of these things, there's some truth uh, nugget in there that makes them sticky myths. And so, for example, people that work with construction equipment that use big vibrator devices all day can get permanent nerve damage. Oh, right. And uh, so, so there is, uh, with vibrator use, some temporary down regulation. Like if you start to use a vibrator on your genitals, it'll probably be more difficult for your partner to use their hand um, within that session. But that sensitivity returns. Yeah. 
Um, so if there's some temporary down regulation with the vibrator, it generally comes back. And the same with porn and robots. This is not going to overstimulate so that we can't actually talk to real people. Exactly. So we just published the first study actually comparing the amount of porn people view with a partnered uh, stimulation in the laboratory. And people who view more pornography actually have higher anticipation and sexual arousal of the interaction with the partner. So the idea that you're going to watch so much porn that you're not going to want people anymore is just not true. We found the opposite, in fact, mm-hmm. that watching more porn seems to just be a marker for high drive. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like I like all things sexual. Yeah. I like porn. I like people. I like vibrators. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely. Okay. So here's another one. Uh, Myth number three is sex without orgasm is not real sex. Yeah, that there are lots of studies about how people define sex. And this is largely a cultural issue. The biggest paper on that you might remember came out with a certain president of ours (laughs) who swore he did not have sex with that woman. (laughs) And there's been a lot of since then, and how do you define sex, uh, and how do you find good sex? And a lot of the shifts that we see in physiology can occur with sexual arousal and high sexual arousal states. Um, so climax does change things. Uh, obviously, you know, there's a, a shift in a number of uh, markers physically when that happens. But just because climax doesn't happen, a lot of other stuff happened before that. <laughs> so uh, I don't think climax is necessary to say that you had sex. A lot of people uh, agree and don't feel that climax needs to occur to define something as being sex and certainly not being good sex. Yeah. That's really, really in the eye of the boulder. Right. Absolutely. Now, one of the things you hadn't mentioned, but I'm just curious now, is that uh, do you measure body temperature and, and blood flow during the sexual pattern? Or during orgasm? We often measure temperature as a part of this. And so the challenge with a lot of the orgasm studies we do is people need access to their genitals fully <laughs> to be able to stimulate themselves to climax. Yeah. And that precludes us getting instrumentation on people. Okay. So we we do measure labial temperature. I really like that measure for a lot of reasons, but I can't use it during our orgasm studies because it gets in the way. Right. <laughs> it won't yeah. stay stay hitched when you're uh, using vibrators or stimulating. Can you not measure body heat like on a forehead or cheeks? Or because I was I often feel flushed after having sex. So you know I feel like my body blood flow at least has has changed. There are some really you can even get uh, over the counter therm. Uh, thermography equipment that will slap onto your iPhone if you have an iPhone and see the changes in the vulvar temperature. And uh, you can even sometimes see the vulvar, uh, the vestibule kind of become more heated. That is the bulbs of the clitoris that are internal, yeah. uh, I think are visible on some of the therm- thermography. So it's heated up. The heat of the genitals tends to correspond more closely to women's experience of their own arousal than the internal vaginal response, oh. which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, women feel that more yeah. <laughs> in general. Wow. Wow. Cool. Um, now we're going to get a little bit into the Masters and Johnsons who were the pioneers of sex research uh, in the 50s and 60s. And of course, if people have seen the Masters of Sex on Showtime, they can kind of imagine what was going on back then. Do you think that was representative of what was happening at that time? From what I understand, it was pretty representative okay. of uh, what was going on. And 
as I tell my students, it hasn't changed a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I know that you have uh, talked about the, the theories that they put out in the 50s and 60s in their tests that they did with their subjects, which I think they watched through class uh, windows and stuff. But um, from what I understand, those tests, ha- those theories have not been proven with our latest technologies. Can you talk about that a little bit? If you had any sex class at all in college, you probably were taught the Masters and Johnson sexual response theory. And that's uh, that and sensate focus are probably their two most impactful uh, theories that they had about sexual response. And the strange thing about their sexual response model is we've never really tested it. And there have been people critical of it in general saying, you know, most people probably don't follow this or, oh, this part of it is really much longer in women. But the actual test to see um, what exactly is happening then, <laughs> like if not that, then what yeah. has not really been conducted? That's when it sat down and just said, does this happen this way? Now, is there a reason why this has not been tested? Oh, yeah. Just so I... I'm not totally sure, of course, but I think some part of it is there's not funding to do that really kind of basic work to see, um, you know, like, does this theory hold true? Normally, if we get any funding at all, it's, you know, how do we make people more sexually responsive? Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily want to test or understand the theory, which is a shame, but uh, such is science. (laughs) Yeah. So I... It's also not straightforward to know exactly what to measure. You know, there are lots of systems that are changing and there are not a lot of sexual psychophysiologists. Psychophysiology is a huge field, but when I go to that annual meeting for our society, I'm usually the only sex researcher there. Okay. Um, there's just not a lot of us working in really properly tested. Okay. And you think it's important to do that or we could just assume that their model is correct? I'm a huge fan of basic science, so the the application is important, of course, but there are some people who think we need to just just focus on application. You know, what can we do right now if we had this information? And there are others of us who, are, uh, who say, well, we need to understand it first, though. We need to think about mechanism and how this came to be so that we can develop better applications. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Now, I know a lot of people are... Really understand how things work. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I know a lot of people are curious or want to know how Viagra and Cialis, those types of drugs, how they work and and why don't we have a female version of this drug readily on the market today? The important thing to know about that class, which is um, broadly called PD-5 inhibitors or phosphodiesterase 5 because of its uh, presence primarily in the genitals, is it requires central activation. So I like to say Viagra won't make her pretty. And Uh what I mean by that is if you're not turned on by your partner, taking Viagra doesn't just give you an erection. There's stuff that does that. Uh, There's a thing called Paprovin you can inject directly into the penis that will force you to have an erection (laughs) if you want to go that peripheral route. But Viagra is essentially prohibiting the breakdown of a muscle relaxant. And it's the relaxation of the penile muscles that allows blood to flow in that gives you an erection. Mm-hmm. So you have to have that central activation. The brain has to say, I'm aroused first <laughs> to have a chance of having the drug work, essentially. So if it's not working for you, uh, you have a, a hint at what might be going on if you don't have central activation. 
And the thing that's interesting with women is uh, essentially PD-5 inhibitors do work in women. It increases the blood in the vaginal walls, but women don't use that to judge their arousal. So if you give them the pill, it does increase the genital response. We can see that in the vaginal photoplasmograph data. But if you say, do you feel aroused? They're like, eh, <laughs> they don't really feel that. So PD-5 inhibitors broadly failed in women, I think, because of that well-known disparity between what women report they feel and what their bodies are doing. And is that because they're not in tune with their bodies or is just not one of the things that we pay attention to when we're getting aroused? It's funny, we've had so many studies trying to understand why that happens, and I don't think we have uh, the answer, but there is some aspect of we're not measuring the right thing, so changes in the vagina are less weighted than the temperature changes in the vulva, for example. Women attend more to those changes in warmth. They notice that in their judgments of sexual arousal. Um, but it's also, you know, when we instruct women, we say, okay, this is what the instrument is measuring. I want you just to set your arousal aside and just try and indicate that they still can't do it very well. (laughs) And so I think it's a a combination of when you ask women to make this judgment, they don't tend to integrate physiological aspects of their response as much. And they also can't detect those things very well. Mm. So between those two, Viagra never had a chance. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I, I never really thought of it that way, but that makes sense. Do you think there's going to be some type of Viagra, different format, whatever, eventually um, discovered for women? It's interesting because we essentially already have drugs that work. Uh, they're called cocaine. <laughs> so, uh, the challenge, of course, is uh, finding things that are facilitating of sexual response that are safe, yeah. not addictive, <laughs> yeah. that uh, you have a reasonable profile. So there's another drug that people have developed that had an antidepressant effect that seemed to be somewhat pro-sexual. And that's not a terrible idea. The kinds of brain circuits that tend to be downregulated in women who have low drive uh, are the same that are impacted in depression. Mm. So I said, oh, yeah, that mechanism kind of makes better sense uh, than going for the periphery. I like that in general. But then that just tells me, are they not just depressed? Yeah. <laughs> like, is that, uh, are we really treating drive there? And there's another line of research that is combining PD-5 inhibitors with testosterone and there's some debate as the, to the safety profile of that and how much you want to be experimenting with adding testosterone with the other effects it can have. So I, I was surprised. I felt like if that was going to take off, it would have by now. There's just, that's been studied for quite a while and still doesn't seem to be a very popular intervention. Um, I'm not totally sure why that is, but it's, I'd, I'd be surprised if we really get a silver bullet with women in the way that we have it with men. Um, just because the judgments men make about their sexual arousal tend to be strongly related to their erection. Yeah. And that is just not the case for women. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I get that. So I have a question. <clears throat> I'm going to try and speak here. Um, in all this research, um, is the size matter? <laughs> uh, size, it will say it has a curvilinear effect. It matters at the extremes in the data that we've seen. So... The paper we probably became best known for is what some people have called the husband dick paper. Pardon my language. (laughs) Uh, The basic finding was that women preferred a slightly larger penis for one-time partners 
and a slightly smaller penis um, for long-term partners. And so some people have called that the husband dick. (laughs) (laughs) What I liked about that is I think it really speaks to the differences and benefits and trade-offs of penile size. That is, there's not an absolute. It's not that being on the bigger side is always good. Being on the smaller side is always better. Um, it's, it depends what you want to do with it. And for example, I think if you're someone who enjoys anal sex and want to have that as a regular part of your relationship, you might prefer a smaller penis size. Mm -hmm. Um, one place where women seem to agree is just on the extreme ends. That is, uh, we call this a a curvilinear effect. So not linear, but if your penis is especially small or especially large, that was a problem for most of the women in our study. And I would say that we could probably confirm that just from the people that we know being in the lifestyle, we do talk about sex and, and size and all of those things um, regularly. So f- basically, I think, yes, we can just confirm that. And we haven't done a study about it. <laughs> <laughs> I know when that study came out, a lot of people were like, no kidding. <laughs> hey, <laughs> But now you've got the scientific research to state a fact. Exactly. <laughs> so that's okay, too. So like when it comes to funding for research projects that you come up with, where do you find your contributors or your partners or your you know, partners to to do the studies with? Yeah, our studies, unfortunately, are not cheap, which is part of why I think there's so much survey research. It's much cheaper and easier to do much quicker than experimental research. So a lot of our work is funded through foundations people specifically interested in a particular practice or a particular problem that they're having. So there in the United States, we have the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation are usually the funders of large scale studies, but there's really not an area that funds sexuality. And I don't think that's, you know, entirely unexpected. That is this, these are paid by the taxpayers and, I want them to cure cancer before they cure anorgasmia. Yeah, you know, I'm yeah. on board with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so I understand like priorities need to be where they are. Um, but I do wish we got some, you know, <laughs> that there were some areas that, uh, that, you know, the application of sex to some of these general health areas. And we, we really do not have good funding in this country. Canada is much better off than we are even. And uh, Europe does better still. Wow. Well, that's okay. I mean, hopefully it'll change, but uh, you're going to continue doing what you can to make push this forward. Uh, we're coming to the end of the show now. We usually like to sign off with a you know good piece of information, um, summaring, summarizing everything that we talked about. So, why would what would you say is the most important reason that sex research is good for health and wellness in our society? I think sex is so good for health because it is cheap and accessible and endogenous. That is. This is something you don't have to wait to get a healthcare provider for. You don't have to worry that uh, it's going to harm you. The the likelihood of a bad outcome is very, very low. Um, obviously, practicing safe sex <laughs> within yeah. that. But there, there are so many opportunities with sex to look at the impacts of you know, the vasopressin that it produces or the oxytocin or... Uh, changes in opioids that occur with arousal. It does so much for the body. And I think if we could understand that better and know how to apply it, there's just a tremendous opportunity there that we could take advantage of. And it's it's so accessible and safe and cheap. 
I would love to put that into people's hands yeah. so they could figure out you know, how to use their body to treat things that are bothering them. Instead of taking all the drugs that are being sold by the pharmaceuticals today, right? Absolutely. I, I see from that perspective why the funding is not there. Yeah. To, because almost everything we're doing is like, you could reduce medication intake, you could reduce medication intake. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so I get it. Yeah, I get it too. Very, very cool. <clears throat> I'm still here. I listened. What an amazing show. Um, hopefully my voice will be back for next week. <coughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> so, Nicole, thank you so, so much for being here. David's not able to continue. <laughs> I just can't speak right now. <laughs> Thanks so much for sharing all your great information. Just remind everyone how people can reach out to you. Easiest way to find me is website, librocenter.com, L-I-B-E-R-O-S, center, all one word, dot com. And from there, we've got Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Wow, perfect. And if you miss any of this information, of course, you just can go to our website, thesexylifestyle.com, where every one of our guests has their own guest page with all their information. And you can even contact them there if you have any questions about their work. And of course, we're learning more and more every week from all our amazing guests, and we hope you do too. If you have any questions at all, you can always send us an email at ask at carolyndavid.com. So we're at the end of another amazing show with another amazing guest, Nicole, Dr. Nicole Prouse. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for hosting. And it sounds like I need to find a way to study topless cruises. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and we always want to thank our listeners for being with us week in and week out. And remember to join us for another hour of The Sexy Lifestyle, talking about sex, sexuality, sexual health and pleasure, and all the fun ways to spice up your sex life and live happy, healthy, and always horny. So that's it for our show today. David and I send you lots of love and great sex. Please stay safe. And of course, stay sexy, everyone. Until next time. Thank you for joining Carol and David for this week's edition of The Sexy Lifestyle. We've got another one lined up next Friday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The weekend is just around the corner, so try something new, spice it up, and you just might have the best sex ever. 